In post-Civil War Texas, a young farm boy is on the lam, pursued by his sister's in-laws after accidentally killing their brother. He falls in with a colorful outlaw, also perpetually on the run from his wife's family due to a vendetta manufactured by his psychotic father-in-law. They form an unlikely pair, robbing their way across the landscape, hoping for a quiet life someday, but fate has a way of interfering. This is the setting of today's film as Gordon and I continue with History Month here on the podcast. While Jeff takes a holiday, we're tackling the 1982 Willie Nelson Gary Busey Western Barbarossa on episode 27 of Celluloid Days. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Hello, folks. While Jeff is away on a much-needed summer break for the month of July, I'm bringing in my spouse, Gordon, who happens to be a history guy, which means historical-themed movies. So welcome again to History Month. This week, for our second film of July, we're heading to the American Southwest for a quirky western. Warning, there will be spoilers today, so go watch the film and come back if you care about those things. Okay, I'm going to start out giving a little background on the film. So by 1982, when this film was made, Westerns weren't really the thing anymore. They, the Clint Eastwood spaghetti Westerns and the wonderful Westerns of the 40s and 50s. Yeah, that was just, oh, that's so last year. So they they were doing more edgy stuff starting in like the 60s. Now, producer Paul Lazarus III brought in Australian film director Fred Scapese, hope I'm pronouncing that right, based on the director's film The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which Lazarus felt was basically an Australian Western. Have you ever seen that one? No. no I've, I've no. heard of it. I, I just haven't seen it yet. Now, the star of this is Willie Nelson, of course. Now, he's mostly known for his country music stuff. And when he was offered the part... He read about two pages of the script before signing on, and he said, I want to be this guy. So this was his first feature film, and he's actually surprisingly engaging. It's kind of a rough-hewn tale of myth-building and the trap of revenge, and he just sort of fits in. He does a really good job. When this film was released in 82, the Big Bend area of Texas was reportedly the most remote filming location of any American movie, at least up to that time. Some of the film was also shot in Brackettville, Texas, at the Alamo Village. And Gordon, you've been to Brackettville. Yes, many, many times. Yes, Gordon has died at the Alamo so many times on camera. And that was the Alamo set that was built for John Wayne's film, The Alamo, of course. Yeah, 1959. Yeah, because you're not going to shoot at the original site. No, it's for in a the couple, middle. For a couple of reasons, yeah. It's in the middle of downtown San Antonio Right, now. and it's a sacred site to Texans, yes. and you're not shooting a movie there. Oh, yeah, great aside on that is somebody who actually was filming in there 
Just like for tourist they're, film? No, they're going to do some kind of film inside. Oh. And these idiot crew guys started drilling in the <gasps> walls. And this, one of the sisters, or the daughters rather, I guess, the daughters of the Texas Revolution uh, came and said, young man, you can't do that. I said, get out of here, lady, we're making a movie. About 20 minutes later, the uh, Texas Ranger showed up and arrested everybody. Good. <laughs> it's people like that that give film crews a bad reputation. Yeah. And in most cases, it's well-deserved. Uh, you know, they can run pretty roughshod over any location. That's why if you have a nice house and someone wants to film a movie in it, get many, many dollars up front because they are going to do damage. But They're anyway, yeah, that's an aside. So right now... Barbarossa is streaming. Oh, and by the way, it's Barbarossa with one S. So if you're just listening to this and you're going to go look it up, it's not like the Barbarossa brothers in the Mediterranean in the 16th, you mean the 16th century, century pirates. Right, right. It's Barbarossa with one S. And it's actually streaming on Prime right now. Just warning the version that they're streaming on Prime is a super edited Hollywood quote unquote version. Which, amongst other things, it leaves out this key moment when, where towards the end of the film, where Don Braulio chastises Eduardo, who has gone off to try and kill Barbarossa, for actually killing Barbarossa, even though that's what he was ostensibly sent to do, because that's not the point. And Don Braulio, the point of the whole vendetta, which he made out of whole cloth, is... It makes the family cool. It makes them great. This vendetta makes the family more than mere goat herders. So it's this toxic honor culture thing and his psychotic vendetta that makes him this big man. But the thing is, it's all is basically a cult and he's a cult leader because he grooms his children and his grandchildren to go after Barbarossa all the time and it gets most of them killed. So there's that. So yeah, so if you can find an uncut original version, it's much, much better. The uh, production camp for this film, speaking of film crews, was because they were filming so remotely, the camp was in this little known western Texas backwater town of Latijas, L-A-T-I-J-A-S, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Latijas, which had a population of about 12 people at the time. And this town was a former desert trading post stop and was General Blackjack Pershing's headquarters during his military campaign fighting against Pancho Villa in Mexico. So I thought that was kind of cool. So that's where that town came from. The, this Don Braulio, the patriarch of the Zavala family, is played by Gilbert Rowland, and this was his final film. Gilbert Rowland is mostly known for all the Cisco Kid movies that he did way back in the 40s, and good-looking guy, good actor, and he's perfect for this part, but um, those, those movies, my first husband grew up with those Cisco Kid movies, and so did my second husband, who's standing right next to me. Oh, I always loved the Cisco Kid, although most of what I saw was the TV show. Ah. The Cisco Kid, but I just I always thought it was fantastic. That was they were my favorite cowboys. So, like I say, westerns had fallen into disfavor by about 1982, which I think is pushing it. I think by the end of the 70s, people were kind of looking for something else. So this may help to explain while initially this movie was a box office flop. Three years later. The Western is basically revived with hits like Silverado and Pale Rider, which both came out in the same year. I mean, Silverado was the first Western I saw on the big screen. 
and I went because I like Kevin Klein and all that. But um, wasn't that also Kevin Costner's? Kevin first Costner, movie? one of his first films. He basically plays the kid in this, the younger brother to one of our heroes, and he's a hoot. I, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he's great. I didn't know who Kevin Costner was, and he the part was just meant for him. It's it's great. So now that's the kind of the background on the film. It was a hard movie to make. It was really unseasonably hot when they were doing it. So, uh, which is hard to do in that part of the world. Oh to be my Unseasonably hot. Yeah, it's just normally hot, Texas. So uh, Gordon's going to give us some of the actual historical setting for the film. So the the Texas Mexican border region it's been plagued by violence since the Texas uh, War for Independence in 1836, and actually long before that. And it continues to this day with uh, just a few interruptions, really. It's it's a violent place. The post-American Civil War period was no exception with both Texas due to war and reconstruction and Mexico due to the invasion by France and the establishment of the short-lived Empire of Mexico under Maximilian being in a state of chaos there was a lot of cross-border criminal activity as well as uh, legitimate commerce. And there's also this mixture of cultures, the, the Tex-Mex, if you will. And the whole place is is rife with adventure. And it makes a great setting for a story. Now, I may be getting this confused with the England-Scotland border, but isn't the whole Texas thing where at least back in like the 19th century where this is set, people constantly raiding each other's cattle across oh, the border. Absolutely. And oh, oh yeah. I'm also getting this confused with a town like Alice, because even in Australia, out in cattle country, there was stuff like, well, I, you got a bunch of my cattle. Yeah, well, you got a bunch of my cattle. Oh, okay. You know, constantly raiding each other's. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> many of the cattle that were driven north to the railheads in Kansas during the 18, late 1860s and 1870s through to, what, about 1885 on the big cattle drives, <laughs> lots and lots of those cattle started life in Mexico oh. and crossed the border either legitimately or not so much. And there were Mexican uh, herds being driven by vaqueros, but there were also Texas cowboys that go south and bring a bunch of cattle back home, back to Texas. In fact, um, there's the... There's a great miniseries, uh, Lonesome Dove, mm-hmm. where they do exactly that. They go, they cross the border, steal a bunch of cattle, and that's what they take to Montana. Didn't the Mexicans brand their cattle? Yeah, but Mexican brands weren't recognized in Texas. Oh, great. And Nor were Texas brands recognized in Mexico, so it was an interesting a, thing. A fluid situation. Now, now there's, there's some weird stuff that went on, though. There were... Um, this fellow Rip Ford had a sort of blood feud with his counterpart in Mexico. But when the French showed up in Mexico, I wish I could remember his name. Uh, the Mexican, you know, uh, Bravo, the Mexican, gets uh, uh, basically local warlord. He sent his family to stay with Rip Ford in Texas where they would be safe. So, there was so it was this, just understood that this was a back and forth thing yeah. that was going on. And and they may be enemies, but it's it's sort of like like at the Scots English border. We may be fighting each other, but when you show up We're both gonna fight together against you. Yeah, and, and Afghanistan. 
I fight my brother. My brother and I fight our cousin. My brother, my cousin, and I fight the outsider. Together. Together, yeah. Now, also, I was just thinking, a lot of what we today consider cowboy material culture, and that includes tack saddles, headgear, clothing, and whatnot, basically comes from Mexico. Absolutely. Absolutely. Modern cowboy culture is, is heavily, heavily based on Mexican cowboy culture, vaquero culture. Our modern Western, quote-unquote, style satyr is just a modified Saddles, yes. Mexican saddle. Absolutely. They cowboy hat. Yep. Now, now Stetson, I think, invented the first, you know, gringo cowboy hat where he takes a felt hat and makes it a broader brim. Didn't know, but he popularized he it. He popularized it, yeah. yeah. The boss of the plains. Yes, hat. yep, that one. But for years and years, American cowboys just called their cowboy hat a sombrero. Okay. That's their sombrero. And in fact, in the literature of the time, the festive cowboy with his broad sombrero. Mm. So what does sombrero actually translate to? I have no idea. It just, <laughs> it's a sombrero. It's a, yeah, it's the, it's the name for a hat. Um, we actually it, know a guy who makes really nice sombreros in, uh, he's in Oklahoma right yes, now. Yes, in RJ. Fay, Fay, Oklahoma. Yeah. yeah, R.J. Preston. Yeah, if you want a nice reproduction, awesome sombrero, talk yeah, to like R.J. He, yeah, he's on Facebook. Yep. R.J. Yeah. Preston. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's ridden with Gordon on many a film. Yep, and we're old compadres. Yeah. So that's our, that's the background. Let's go on into things we didn't like and things we did like. Um, this won't take too terribly long. I thought it's a style, it's a choice, and it definitely comes out of the 60s and 70s, but there are so many close-ups in this. I can't imagine watching this film on the big screen because there's so many looking up somebody's nose shots where it's like, whoa, I was, you know, that's not how I would shoot. And But that's a choice, and it gets you right into a character. And on a television, it's not so bad, but on a big screen, it could be annoying. A lot of really, not extreme close-ups, but some, some. And this also is related to my second point, which is, as mentioned before, it was really hot when they were shooting, and you can tell everybody is sweaty, everybody is dirty. This movie just wants to me to take a shower. Well, it's a, it's a that's good, South Texas. I know, South which is West why Texas. I don't live in Texas. I've got friends down there who keep saying, you should come and move down here. And I'm like, no, it's too hot in the summer. I don't want to. Yeah, it's a really good story, but it's so dirty and sweaty. And so those close-ups, you get to see every bead of sweat and every speck of dust, and it just it's uncomfortable. My third thing that I didn't like is a story issue, and that is... We haven't mentioned it before, but this whole vendetta thing with Barbarossa is that he's married into this family. He's married Don Braulio's daughter, Josefina, Josefina, and crazy drunken shenanigans happened on their wedding night, and Don Braulio turned this into a vendetta. And he's basically keeps building on this and, and embroidering the tale of what happened because it makes them sound epic. And why does Josefina stay with her toxic, insane family? I don't understand it. He's Her dad is a cult leader. He's a psychopath. He's sacrificing his sons and grandsons to feed this crazy vendetta to make him look spectacular. And I, you know... One of the reasons Barbarossa is robbing all the time is he gives all this money to Josefina to save up so they can go have a life somewhere. So she's got this trunk full of gold, 
they could just go and and she stays there i mean it, yeah because it's in the script is an answer too but i don't know i don't i don't get it so those are my three things what are three things you didn't really care for um well i don't know gary Busey's character he starts out as a complete dummy he is the most ignorant farm boy you will ever see and it's, I, I know they exist, but it, it, it's hard to take somebody being that dumb. But, you know, of course, that's part of the character act. This has to grow. Story arc. Yeah. yeah, character arc and stuff. Um, so I have to let that pass. But it did, it always bugged me of this, like, oh my God, this kid's stupid. But, you know, that does allow Barbarossa the ability to teach him. Uh, my second thing is I certainly agree with too many close-ups. <laughs> uh, they are kind of jarring and, I don't know, a little, a little over much. Were there any material culture things that you thought were a problem? Um, I don't think bib overalls were a thing at the time. Uh, which is what Busey's in at the beginning. Right. It's a costume designer thing is. to make him look young and oaky-ish. And very farm boy. Yeah. He's very farm so, boy. So I get it. People wore, in fact, that's what Levi's were. Levi's were overalls. Yeah. And they were to wear over your wool trousers to keep them clean. And I'll give them this. They were not off the rack Levi's oh, no. overalls. No, 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 no. These no. were loving hands at home, sackcloth. You yeah, know, just something that a poor, poor person would wear. Yeah. Right. So they, so they kind of compromised there. Yeah. So I mean, it, that that was good in that regard. Um, there are a couple little things that the part in the um, he goes into the uh, the cantina mm -hmm. and there's a the hookers are trying to, mm -hmm. you know, they get into a fight over who gets to be with him. Right. And there's a knifing and all this kind of stuff. It's like. Whoa, that's it's weird. That's really weird. It's a little bit over the top. Yeah. And then by the 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 owner of the cantina saying, "You're gonna have to pay for this." What is kind of not found in nature? Yeah, it's awfully weird. And the women's hair is terrible. They're running around in their underwear, which is terrible. Again, it's a lot of my hobby horses <laughs> about you know horrors of the old west. They did not look like that. Yeah. So yeah. Oh well. Luckily, it's a quick moment and it's over. Let's go on to things that we did like. Um, there were a lot of things to like about this movie. For one thing, I like the hats. I think they did a great job with the hats. Oh, yes. Not only are they period blocks, some of them are Anglos, some of them are Mexican, some of them are sort of, you know, across, you know, Tejano or whatever. I just thought they were really nice. Barbarossa's sombrero is beat up and worn and weathered, and it just looks like it's been around the West. It's probably a little late mm. for the period. It should be more like a circa 1890s, 1900, but it's still awfully cool. Yeah. Incredibly it's, cool. It's well done. Uh, there's some of the Texans in Texas have a little bit too close to a goat roper hat for my taste, a little more modern hat. But again, it shows that these are Texans. And then you've got the Mexicans of uh, the Savala family who are running around in, yeah, which are pretty much California hats. But, but again, again, they're not goat rope no, hats. No, no, they're, they're beautiful There's hats. no modern blocks on these hats no. for the most part, and I think they did a nice job there. I mean, the art beautiful. direction overall I, oh, in this word. is really good. That awful cantina scene aside, those were our nitpicks. The rest of it is fine. There's a lot of dirt. 
not as bad as some things I've seen subsequently. There's there was a TV show that was on for a while. A friend of ours was really into it, and it was about it was about railhead towns. What was it called? Hell on Wheels. Hell on Wheels. And so you're on. You know, the railhead town is the the little ad hoc towns, tent cities that build up around the end of of a railroad as you're building the railroad and then you the railroad builds past it a ways and once it gets far enough away then you pick up the town and move it again to the next end of the railroad anyway i watched part of one episode and it made me want to throw a brick at the tv because everybody was filthy there's like at the beginning of every shooting day did they line them all up against a wall and throw mud balls at them it was awful and they were literally living in the mud at one point Someone's got a cook fire, campfire, literally in a mud puddle, which means that it was obviously, it's a movie fire, so it's being fed by propane, which is why it's still burning. In real life, you wouldn't, you can't build a fire in a mud puddle. I'm sorry. And I know they were trying to make things be gritty and realistic, but they went so far over the line that it was just, it was like the peasants in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where there's rooting around in the mud for no reason. In this movie, everything is sort of justified. There's a lot of nice Mexican wardrobe, Mexican hats. The women's hair is kind of bad overall and just sort of out there. But I can let that pass because everything else is good. At one point, they're at this barbecue, um, like up in the hill country of Texas. And there's a horse race and there's little tents and they're serving barbecue and they're doing things and it all looks real it all feels real it's really really nice so i like the art direction i like all the material culture the clothes the boots the horse tack um there was never a moment where i was rolling my eyes and taken out of the movie so that was really nice again on story things my third bullet point is i think it's a good hero tale it's a it's a story about myth building, but it's definitely a hero journey, and it's a hero journey for Gary Busey's character. Absolutely, and he's and Gary Busey's, or, I mean um, Willie Nelson's character, Barbarossa, is basically a combination of the older hero and the mentor, which is a segment of that hero, you know, Joseph Campbell hero journey thing, and I really like the passing of the torch at the end. It's a really, it's a different movie. It's a different kind of Western. Some people call it a spaghetti Western, but it's not because it's not made by an Italian. It's made by an Aussie, but um, Vegemite Western? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, those are the things I like about it. What I like about it. Well, first off, I've always been fascinated by the cross-pollination that goes with the U.S.-Mexican border area. Um, Texas in particular, but also New Mexico and Arizona and California. There's a, a lot of, of really interesting stuff to me. Uh, one of my favorite TV Westerns, aside from the Cisco Kid, uh, was the High Chaparral because they actually had Mexicans in it. Most of the TV Westerns, other than the Cisco Kid. Everybody's a white guy. Everybody's a white guy, except, except John Wayne. John Wayne always ensured that he had some Mexicans involved, which was you know, kudos to him. Most, most American directors like, what? I didn't know Mexican. You have a token Mexican guy working out in the barn and then the cook is always a Mexican woman. Often. Often. Sometimes a Chinese guy. Oh yeah, Chinese guy. (laughs) Like a uh, bonanza. You know, I grew up in fairly rural California. uh, So I was very aware of the Spanish Mexican heritage of the Southwest. 
And I went to all the missions. My parents took it, my brother and, and, and me, to all the missions in California, all mm. 21 of them. And so I really viscerally understood there is this Spanish-Mexican heritage. Mm -hmm. And it, it sort of, even as a little kid, I was sort of disappointed that that wasn't really shown very in, much. In TV westerns? In TV westerns, yeah. yeah. So this was, this was really, really, really nice. It sort of, this film sort of satisfies that itch mm -hmm. of, of, of that. Um, I also, again, I love the mixture of Texas-Mexican clothing in Barbarossa. Like Willie Nelson, he's wearing his, well, the Texans call them leggings, mm -hmm. but the chops or chaparreras, but they've got the Mexican buttons yeah, on the side. The silver buttons down silver the outseam. Yeah. And that looked really, really cool. I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, and the short jackets. I mean, all this oh, stuff, yeah. like Levi jackets, those, those are basically copies of Mexican jackets. You know, oh, yeah. jackets, um, all this kind of stuff. I also really appreciated that there was a, <laughs> I'm a gun nut, there's a wide mixture of firearms. I love the historical firearms. And they had a really wide mixture of absolutely period correct firearms, but from about 30 years prior, 40 years prior or so to that point. Which makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, people didn't, people didn't have a toss it away and buy a new one mentality. They used things till they were absolutely not workable anymore. And although Willie Nelson's carrying cartridges, character Barbarossa, they're generally carrying cap and ball revolvers. Now maybe they're converted. It's hard to tell, but converted from cap and ball, the old Civil War period type of uh, having loose ammunition of, you know. Yeah, you might need to explain to some of our listeners what cap and ball means. Yeah, you have a little percussion cap, which is your primer that fits on a, a cone, a little cone or nipple in the very back of the, the cylinder, the revolving cylinder in the revolver. Uh, and then you put your gunpowder and the bullet, the ball, in the front. You're making loads into the cylinder. Right. Every time you want to load this gun, you have to right. get out your powder flask and a bag of lead balls and some wadding, and you load it up. And There's no just little... dropping little cartridges in every time right. you want to reload. And you got these little copper caps, mm -hmm. that, sort of like the caps, the same stuff as in a cap gun, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a little copper end and the, cap. And when the hammer hits that cap on Pop. the end of the cylinder, it, it triggers off the, yeah, the charge inside. Yeah, charge. So, th and this was an phasing out during the 1870s, but they were obsolescent, not obsolete. People were still using them into the 18, into the early 1900s. People still use them because they're very efficient. You could mm -hmm. load for that day. All you had to buy was the powder and the lead and some caps. You didn't have to have a specific cartridge, which may or may not be available. There's a point. nice scene in Quigley Down Under, which is another oh, yes. Western we should do sometime, yeah. um, where Cora is in the cave fighting off the dingoes while Quigley has gone to get help and she's frantically reloading the revolver yes. and it shows the process and how, you know, she's she's nervous and she's frustrated, but by golly, she's doing it. Yep, because you only got six. Now, <clears throat> speaking of six, actually the firearm that um, the Gary Busey's character ends up carrying that he got from, was it Angel Morales? The yes. The bad guy. Uh, is a Colt, what they call a Texas Patterson or Texas model, the holster model, the big one, a whole 36 caliber 
revolver that's a super presentation model. And it's just like, oh, that so, is so cool. So it's all engraved. It's all engraved. Pretty. Probably made, would have been made in 1840. And this is like 35 or so years later. So it's still in use. I mean, things don't break. In, guns don't break easily. And then when they do, they're fairly straightforward to fix. They're fairly, <laughs> fairly sturdily made. And so here he's packing this five shooter that was, you know. The Patterson's a five? Pat yeah, it was only five oh. shots. It didn't become six shots until 1847. And I could give a whole dissertation on that, but we won't <laughs> go there. But, you know. It's really cool. And then you've got Eduardo, who has one of the latest things, the Smith & Wesson number 2 Army model in 32 caliber rimfire, which is like a 22. And they don't make anything bigger than 22 in this rimfire So anymore. that's a fancy new gun. Fancy new gun, yeah. But it's not so fancy and so new that it would be unusual for this Mexican guy out in the hinterlands to be carrying so I mean, it's really, really neat. Willie Nelson's carrying um, what an 1862 pattern Colt police model <laughs> in 36. It's also a five shooter, and so it's, it's. So the armorer did his research. The armorer really did a lot of research, and he he pulled some really cool stuff out of probably Stembridge, uh, <laughs> ah. who was doing all the the most of the armory stuff in those days. Yeah. Really cool stuff, and, and it again that tickles a really good itch of mine. It's, well, cool. it's really good. All right, well, let's go to our ratings for historical rating. I give this a nine out of ten. As I've said before, I think they did a really nice job with keeping this feeling like it was a window into history. What about you? Um, I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten as well. I probably should do only an eight out of ten because there's a couple things that are a little odd, but not enough so. It's one of those things where it's in the spirit of, so yes. you give it a pass on some of the choices. Yes. I can't forgive some of the women's hair and that cantina scene, but there are other things where I get why you made that choice and it fits and it get, keeps it in the spirit of, if, even if it's not like thread count perfect. It's good enough. And it oh, and Willie Nelson's saddle is perfect too. Oh, yeah. It's a nice high back, high. I can't one. I did see there's some shots where you can see they're using old saddles on these horses and and I can see that the saddles are not fitting the horses very well where well, they're basically it. perching up on top of their backs and you see a lot of air under the front of the tree. Well those were, but the, a lot of the early ones were made that way. Were they made to ride that high? Uh -huh. So oh. that when your horse got really skinny, it wouldn't still wouldn't rub on. Oh, well these horses are nice fat movie nice horses, <laughs> so those poor saddles are sitting right on top of them. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that you know, that's so picky and minor. What about story? I give it a nine out of ten for even for the edited for the edited version, which where they removed some of the story elements, and I give it a 10 out of 10 for the original cut. Even though this is not a go-to movie for me, it just makes me feel too itchy because it's so hot and sweaty all the time. But this, but to be objective, I think it's a solid story, so I give it a 10 out of 10. Um, I have to agree. Okay. Same, except I don't get itchy about it. I just want I want to go. There. I know you just want to live there, but yeah, you, can, I, I you have like, a good time. I'll stay here. I like New Mexico and West Texas. East Texas, I can do without. That's too hot and sticky. I'll take hot and dry. Well, let's get on to user ratings. Now, for some reason, there are only five critic reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and zero user reviews because, and I quote, 
the film is not yet released, unquote. Okay, came out in 82. I don't know what's going on at Rotten Tomatoes, but that's kind of weird. So luckily, all five reviews are positive, which gives Barbarossa a 100% Rotten Tomatoes score. So that's something. So what I did was I bipped over to IMDb, Internet Movie Database, um, and there's a lot of reviews there. Most of them are from the early 2000s. I guess the movie went streaming at some point in the early 2000s and got a lot of people's attention. So I'm reading this one, the first one, because I disagree with pretty much every point in it. And it's also the only one-star review on IMDb. This is from Stefan899, quote, Most boring Western ever. This movie was so dull and tedious. It has none of the charisma of young guns or the adventure of the good, the bad, and the ugly. There were no gunfire duels. In fact, hardly any guns fired at all. Um, I'm going to interject in here. Were you watching the same movie I watched? There was plenty of gunplay. Anyway. What little action there was just showed people falling down after a few gunshots fired. No blood, no wounds. Willie Nelson looked too old and too tired for his role. He looked nothing like the supposed menacing and bloodthirsty Barbarossa, unquote. You know, I just think this guy needs to get out more because I don't know what movie he watched. Now, there's a wonderful review by John Jennings here on IMDb. He titles it, One of the Best Films No One Ever Saw. And I have to agree with that. He says, It's a great western and an examination of myth. One of the best westerns ever made. The subject here is myth and the people who become mythic heroes. Barbarossa is, on the one hand, a legendary bandit, and on the other, an ordinary Texan who steals for a living. A young man on the run becomes Barbarossa's companion, then his acolyte. Both men are looking for a place in the world, and the role they find is that of outlaw hero. The myth is that of outlaw lover, as in Hughes is the outlaw or Brando's one-eyed jacks. And both Nelson and Busey play their roles to perfection. The directing is excellent, the dialogue nigh perfect. A great western. Well, I don't know how I can top that. That guy really likes this movie. So who would like this movie? I think fans of spaghetti westerns, fans of westerns set in the Southwest, fans of gritty hero tales. Um, if you're looking for crashing spaceships and explosions and automatic gunfire, like that reviewer above, I think, then it's not for you. This is much more realistic. If you've seen Unforgiven, which I also recommend, there's even some talk in, in that movie, some dialogue in that movie where he talks about fanning your 45 and shooting fast and all that stuff that's not people who know what they're doing someone who knows what they're doing stands takes aim and carefully shoots and that's the first time you see Barbarossa pull the trigger that's exactly what he does and you can tell this guy knows what he's doing the bear lives here the wolf the antelope the Comanche and so will we and we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring, when the grass turns green and the Comanche moves north, you can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle, and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche. That will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? It's here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. We have a Facebook page, and it's called, naturally, Celluloid Days. 
Please join us there to comment and discuss the films we cover. We're also on Twitter at celluloid underscore days. We're always looking for film suggestions, and the more strange and unusual, the better. Our email address is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. That's all one word, days of celluloid. Feel free to email us for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you get this podcast. It will help others find the show. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week for our third film for History Month, the 1976 Western, The Outlaw Josie Wales. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.